Welcome back to Plausible, a podcast where you, the jury, dive with me into the discovery of things having the appearance of truth or reason. Plausibility gives space not for what you already know, but for the outliers, conjectures, the unexplained history, the crazy sounding hard to believe, but true. Got your coffee? Or maybe a nice cortado? Join me as we rethink what is or isn't plausible. Episode 4, Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli. When I was in my senior year of high school, I worked as a hostess at a family-owned Italian restaurant in Virginia. It was a great job. Everyone was really friendly, and I got to work there with my best friend. We would work on the weekends and then go to the gas station across the street and get Cheez-Its and pints of Ben and & Jerry's and then do a sleepover. It was awesome. The family that owned the restaurant were Italian. If I remember correctly, they were the first generation to immigrate. They were very proud of their establishment and also proud of the photo of the Pope they had hanging in the restaurant lobby. They were really kind for the most part and even bought both of us really nice pairs of earrings as graduation presents. During that time, my sister had also become very interested in researching the mafia. And after we left and went to college, my sister told us what we had suspected to be true. The restaurant was shut down and the owners were in trouble with the law because they were indeed part of a crime syndicate, a.k.a. the mafia. One can imagine that this only fed my growing fascination of them having been so close. The Mafia was tied in with the Kennedys all the way back to the beginning with JFK's father, Joseph Kennedy, and all the way to the end with Jack Ruby. We didn't talk a lot about Oswald's assassin in the last episode because I wanted to talk about him along with the Mafia. Let's start at the beginning with Joe Kennedy, and then we will get back to Jack Ruby. Joe Kennedy was born September 6, 1888, and grew up in the world of politics and business under his dad. And then he followed in those footsteps, one of them being to marry Rose Fitzgerald, whose father was Honey Fitz, the first Irish Catholic mayor of Boston. This is where John F. Kennedy gets his middle name, Fitzgerald. Unfortunately for Rose, this union would bring a lot of chaos and sadness. We are going to spend our last episode on the tragedies and deaths surrounding the Kennedy family, often referred to as the curse of the Kennedys. But before any of those things came, Joe led the way for his sons in developing relationships with the mafia, with people like Johnny Rosselli and Sam Giancana, who headed up the Chicago mafia, both of whom had close ties with the CIA. He also led the way on being unfaithful in his marriage. Joe even went as far as bringing his mistress, Gloria Swanson, to the family getaway in Hyannis Port with the family there. And as we know from episode two, Joe led the way in climbing the political ladder as well, but always had the ambition that his sons would take those reins further than he ever did. Very typically wealthy, arrogant man who lived vicariously through his sons in all the things he was never able to do himself. Roger Stone says, There was no curse, only a family whose privileged nature and commitment to excel led them to make reckless decisions. Here is an interview by Patrick Bett David of Valuetainment with former Mafia member Michael Francis about the ties of the Mafia to the Kennedys and the lengths that Joe Kennedy would go to. So then you read and say, well, the mob helped Kennedy get elected. 
I don't know that. I'm asking you, so my first question is, is the answer to that yes? And two, once Kennedy got elected, the follow-up is, it's been said that once he got elected, they try to distance themselves from the mob to, to look like they were good, so nothing would happen. The mob got upset about it, and when they got upset about it because they couldn't fulfill their commitments they made to the mob, the mob said, we got to do something about it, and they went about doing what they did to hire who they hired to shoot him, and then, et cetera. When he walked off, the mob killed him. Now, this is some of the stories. Obviously, a lot of this is conspiracy, but one of the best conspiracies to read about is Kennedy. People are so mm -hmm. fascinated by it. Having said that, what do you know about the JFK uh, situation there? Well, understand, my father is through that whole era, and many of the guys that I knew were through that whole era. So all I ever heard, and that I know to be true, okay, and there's no upside in me saying this. I, I'm not writing a book about it, nothing. But there's no question that Joe Kennedy was involved with that. He was a bootlegger. You're there's not gonna, no question. No question. Okay. And I know for a fact that somebody wanted to kill Joe um, Kennedy during those times because I heard that he was robbing money, wasn't doing the right thing, and his life was spared. Okay? This is 40s? This is 30s? This is, this in, is in the 50s, 50s, okay. during that era. He was a bootlegger. You're not a bootlegger unless you're dealing with us guys. That's it. Okay, no question also, okay, that uh, through his father, uh, John Kennedy was, we wanted him in the White House, and he was a connection as far as we were concerned. So yes, through Chicago, through Louisiana, um, he was, they did help him get elected. They did help Absolutely. him get elected. Union votes and so you on. You know so about on. this. I, I know this for a fact. Okay, got okay? it. And now, the government's never going to want anybody to know this. They're going to call me a liar and all that kind of stuff, but that's the truth, Patrick. And as far as the assassination, I mean, come on. Did Jack Ruby come out of nowhere? I mean, he had all of a sudden these mob ties didn't mean anything. If you had mob ties with me, they would want to say it all over the world. Oh, you're connected with the mob. All of a sudden, Ruby, who was connected with the mob, not as saying he wasn't, you know? They never want it to be known that the mob had a hand in that assassination because it makes them look horrible. The government doesn't want anybody to know that. But, I mean, I've heard that consistently throughout my, my whole tenure in that life, all the time. You know, Giancana in Chicago and... and uh, so when he got killed, you're saying the assassination is linked back to the mob? Yes. Now, again, it's been said, yeah, it's not true, he's a liar. I have no upside in saying this, other than this is what I know to be true throughout my whole time in that life. I heard it from my father, I heard it from everybody that I know that was in that era. I was there, I was younger, obviously. I mean, I wasn't coming up at that time, but but it was shortly after. I mean, I, be, I got recruited in the 70s. It was a couple of years after he was killed. So that story was fresh. Okay, let's start with how he said, you're not a bootlegger unless you're dealing with us guys. That's it. I mean, I could listen to him all day long, but it makes so much sense, especially in that time in America. Once you started doing business in the mob's territory, I don't think you stopped doing that unless you wanted to live a quiet life and get out of everything. But Joe Kennedy clearly wanted anything but a quiet life. Now let's tackle the next part he talks about, the mafia helping Kennedy get elected through Chicago and Louisiana because of Joe's connections. We already touched on New Orleans being a place where lots of questionable things happened involving Oswald and the CIA. So to me, it makes sense that the ground level of how those things played out also involved the mafia, including getting Jack Kennedy in office. 
Carlos Marcelo was the mob boss of New Orleans in this time, and there were ties between him and Jack Ruby as well as the Kennedys. But Chicago also seems very plausible. Listen to this clip from a friend of mine whose family goes back several generations in Chicago, talking about his uncle's experience at the time of the 1960 election. What happened in our family, this is a very small cross section, but the local alderman showed up and my grandfather was a fireman. So alderman can get you fired. And he's like, yeah, I know you have lots of kids. Here's boxes. Girls fill out these boxes. Boys fill out these boxes. Everybody votes for Kennedy. And they dropped them off and they said, and if you like your job, we'll be back in the morning. All these will be filled out. And they stayed up half the night. I mean, lots of, not just little boxes, just Kennedy, Kennedy, Kennedy. And the next day, the alderman came by, picked up all the boxes and went off. So you don't even need mail-in to be corrupt. Yeah. Like they literally, my uncle was like, no, I was there. The guy said, and my, my dad was like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to lose my job, start filling out ballots. And, they, and that election between Kennedy and Nixon was close. Oh, it was very close. It was really close. And guess what? I know within tens tens of thousands, like like not thousands of ballots. And that's what they joke about, you know, Chicago, dead people voting, all that corruption is not false. That's That's true true. stories from people we literally know. So what's Alderman? What is Alderman is like a it's a it's like a low level politician, but Mm. city. It's like a it's like a mayor of the of that borough. Of that borough, right. Oh, it's almost like little mayors. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they all, and those guys are told by the, the, you know, the mayor of the whole deal, like, hey man, I'm going to need somebody to know. Clearly the mafia being intertwined with the Kennedys, especially politically, is as certain as it can be, considering that we're decades out from all of that. So what's really interesting is that when JFK is elected as president, he places his brother, Robert or Bobby Kennedy, in the seat of attorney general. Then Bobby very publicly shares that it's his mission to clean up the mob. When he took the job in 1960, there were 19 indictments of organized crime members, and by November 1963, there were over 600. Let me tell you a story about Frank Sinatra that Bill O'Reilly shares in his book, Killing Kennedy. In 1962, while JFK is planning a visit to Frank Sinatra's house in Palm Springs, The Justice Department does an investigation that reveals Sinatra's deep connections to the mafia. It was publicly known that Sinatra and Kennedy were friends, as well as Bobby, and then Peter Lawford, who was their sister Patricia's husband, was a literal member of the Rat Pack. Once this info gets out about Sinatra, Bobby tells JFK that he needs to stay somewhere in Palm Springs and cancel the visit to Frank's house. Which, by the way, also means JFK has to find somewhere else to spend time with Marilyn Monroe, which was part of that visit's escapades. This is just two months before her infamous performance of Happy Birthday, Mr. President. But here's the most interesting part. Frank Sinatra had actually made huge changes to his home to prepare for Kennedy's visit. O'Reilly says that he purchased extra land next to his property and built cottages for the Secret Service. He had installed special state-of-the-art phone lines. Pictures of JFK are hung all over the main house. And most important, Sinatra had built a special new cement landing pad for the president's helicopter. So, when the trip gets canceled, Sinatra obviously loses it, even allegedly walking outside with a sledgehammer and destroying the concrete helipad. The irony is that JFK ended up still going on this trip and staying at Bing Crosby's house for the weekend, who was very much a Republican. The point of sharing this story is that though it was sort of a mutually beneficial relationship between the mafia and the Kennedys, 
It was becoming clearer over time that the respect the Kennedys had for them did have a tight limit, and it probably embarrassed the members of the mob on more than one occasion. It was such an obvious pursuit by Bobby Kennedy that I even wonder if it was meant to be some kind of front in the public eye to keep attention off of their affairs with the mafia. But that we will never know. As far as crime goes, the mafia certainly didn't need any help with breaking the law or creating enemies but it may have not proven to be as profitable for them as they thought it would be to make deals with the CIA. Sam Giancana, who was the mob boss in Chicago, died June 19, 1975, in his home in Oak Park, Illinois. He died the day before he was to testify to the U.S. Senate Select Committee about the assassination. He was shot seven times in the back of the head. Frank Regano, an organized crime lawyer, indicated that the bullets that went through Giancana's throat symbolized that he had been talking, and the ones that went through his mouth symbolized that he would never talk again. Johnny Rosselli, Giancana's number two, was also connected to the CIA because of a plot to kill Castro and allegedly later claimed that he was a part of the assassination of Kennedy. Not so surprisingly, Rosselli died in 1976, His manner of death is pretty shocking, however. He had dinner with Tampa's mob boss, Santo Traficante, and then went missing. In August, a 55-gallon oil drum was discovered off the shores of Miami with holes punched in it. Roselli's body had been sawn in half and put inside the drum. Now let's talk about Jack Ruby. Full name, Jacob Rubenstein, but he answered to Jack Ruby. And I think as the years went on, that was ingrained deeper and deeper in him due to the prejudice he experienced from being Jewish. His father was Russian-Polish and unfortunately was an alcoholic, and his mother suffered from schizophrenia. So Jack started living in Jewish foster homes in Chicago at the age of 12. Later on, he owned a nightclub in Dallas called the Carousel Club. Though there's conflicting evidence, it seems like he was involved with the CIA and the FBI at various times and had lots of political connections. He had prostitutes working at his club, and even Madeline Brown, mistress of LBJ that we talked about in episode one, had worked for him for a time. He also knew a lot, a lot, of Dallas police officers. I'm sure that was advantageous in his work, but there seems to have been a lot of corruption there that could have also led to his protection and connections in regard to the killing of Oswald. Dan Abrams and David Fisher in their book, Kennedy's Avenger, Assassination, Conspiracy, and the Forgotten Trial of Jack Ruby, that was released this year, share a lot of details about Jack's trial. In his trial, his defense attorney, Melvin Belly, decided after he became involved in the case to approach his defense in a way no one was expecting. He claimed that Jack Ruby was not guilty by reason of insanity, and also that it was therefore not premeditated. Now, Belly had tried a different route for bail at first, but it was denied, and he had an unusually successful rate of winning on the basis of insanity for his clients. So knowing that, it was probably a big strength in his strategy. Though this was Belly's claim for defense, Jack was in a sound enough state of mind to write articles called My Story in which he shared who he was and what he thought about Oswald while he was sitting in jail for his trial. It took two weeks to finalize the jury, which consisted of eight men and four women, all white and from Protestant backgrounds. 
They were all middle-aged and had very good jobs. Deliberation took two hours and 19 minutes. Then Judge Joe B. Brown read the verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of murder with malice as charged in the indictment and assess his penalty as death. Belly planned to appeal the verdict to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals, but first Jack Ruby agreed to testify to the Warren Commission. In June, he met with Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren, Congressman Gerald Ford, and several attorneys in an interrogation room in Dallas County Jail. This is what Ruby said to them. I would like to be able to get a lie detector test or truth serum. Gentlemen, unless you get me to Washington, you can't get a fair shake out of me. I'm not a crackpot. I have all my senses. I don't want to evade any crime I am guilty of. I am as innocent regarding any conspiracy as any of you gentlemen in the room. He was very scared for the safety of his family and kept bringing it up to the commission as well. Nobody was called for the prosecution to tie Oswald and Ruby together because it seemed there wasn't anything that would hold up in court to prove it. But one of the things that became clear from Oswald's time in New Orleans and the DA Jim Garrison doing his case there is that Oswald and Ruby did know each other. James Eugenio tells us in his book on the Garrison case that on a job application form, Oswald listed the name Jack Ruby as one of three references. There were also reports that Oswald had been to Jack's club. While Jack was in jail, only one reporter had a private interview with him. Her name was Dorothy Kilgallen. After she interviewed him, she knew she had something important. She was writing a book titled Murder One to reveal parts of the conspiracy and new information from Jack. It was not to be, though. On November 8th, 1965, Kilgallen was found dead in her apartment in New York City. It was said to be an accidental overdose from alcohol and barbiturates, but there were many clues that said otherwise. Also, all her notes from the interview with Jack Ruby were gone. Ruby did end up having the lie detector test done by the FBI. They then filed the appeal. In June 1966, he had a sanity hearing and was allowed to testify. October 5, 1966, the Texas Appellate Court panel unanimously overturned the guilty verdict and called for a new trial for Jack outside of Dallas. December 8, they announced that the retrial would take place in Wichita Falls. But the next day, on December 9, 1966, Ruby was diagnosed with pneumonia and was admitted to the Parkland Hospital, where JFK and Oswald both died. They discovered cancer all throughout Ruby's body. It apparently started in his lungs and spread to his liver and brain. Jack Ruby died January 3, 1967. His attorney, Phil Burleson, made an interesting statement that Jack Ruby died an innocent man. And in the eyes of the law, he had. It went back to what we talked about in the first episode. Ruby had been proven guilty. Then it was appealed, and he was back to innocent until proven guilty, and then he died. But what if Jack knew about his cancer before he killed Oswald? Now on to the CIA. The Central Intelligence Agency was established in 1947. In 1948, President Harry Truman's National Security Council 
approved NSC-102, which gave the CIA permission to head up espionage abroad and covert operations. It states, As used in this directive, covert operations are understood to be all activities, except as noted herein, which are conducted or sponsored by this government against hostile foreign states or groups as in supported of friendly foreign states or groups but which are so planned and executed that any U.S. government responsibility for them is not evident to unauthorized persons and that if uncovered, the U.S. government can plausibly disclaim any responsibility for them. Specifically, such operations shall include any covert activities related to propaganda, economic warfare, preventative direct action, including sabotage, anti-sabotage, demolition, and evacuation measures, subversion against hostile states, including assistance to underground resistance movements, guerrillas, and refugee liberation groups, and support of indigenous anti-communist elements in threatened countries of the free world. Such operations shall not include armed conflict by recognized military. I know that is a mouthful, but it goes to prove this point. When this was passed, Truman was warned that this would make the CIA's power almost limitless. And indeed it was. In December 1963, Truman wrote in the Washington Post, there's something about the way the CIA has been functioning that is casting a shadow over our historic position, and I feel we need to correct it. As Roger Stone notes, the CIA was a conspiracy unto itself. Now, there is a lot of known animosity between President Kennedy and the CIA right away, especially their director of the CIA at the time, Alan Dulles, because of the Bay of Pigs invasion. It was a catastrophe and JFK sort of inherited it. It was designed in early 1960 and was approved by President Eisenhower just before he left office. The plan was to train Cuban exiles and overthrow Castro's government from within his own country. There would be a main force for ground support of two airstrikes on Cuban bases, as well as another attack from the east to create confusion. Then the main force would take Castro's people and set up a provisional government. But the Cuban exiles, who were trained in Guatemala, were limited. On April 17, 1961, 1,400 exiles landed on Playa Giron in southern Cuba. But Castro knew they were coming. It had become common knowledge amongst the Cuban exiles in Miami, and word had spread to Castro. His forces killed more than 100 and captured 1,197 when they were denied sufficient air support and ammunition from the U.S. The CIA knew that Soviet forces knew about the attack in advance, but they did not tell Kennedy that. And after an internal investigation on the CIA, it revealed the operation had been poorly handled by them because they hadn't done adequate research on Castro's strengths or his forces, and they did not have adequate preparation, resources, or training. On December 23, 1962, a year and a half later, a plane containing the first group of freed prisoners landed in the United States. After this failed operation, Kennedy asked for the resignation of Alan Dulles as well as the other two that headed it. Parallel to the Bay of Pigs, the CIA had set up Operation 40, which was also established by Alan Dulles. It had 40 operatives originally, hence the name, but grew to 70. 
Its purpose was to administer liberated territories inside Cuba once the invasion had succeeded. But there seemed to be an underlying purpose as well, to kill communists. One of the most obvious mergers of the CIA and Mafia is something called Operation Mongoose. The intent was to build a resistance movement in Cuba by various means, covered by the National Security Council 10-2, to create an uprising. Kennedy approved that part, but it would seem he did not approve the part where the CIA decided to attempt assassination of Castro. This was when the CIA operatives connected with Johnny Rosselli, who I mentioned earlier, and other mob ties, and there were poison pills they were supposed to be using on Castro. The operation did not succeed. Operation Northwoods was another that was not sanctioned by JFK or Bobby that stemmed out of Operation Mongoose. It was what is called a false flag operation, meaning that crimes or activities would be instigated by American agents disguised as an enemy. Then that would give permission to attack the targeted enemy that supposedly attacked us first. So, in the case of Northwoods, It would be American agents disguised as Cubans attacking America so that then we could attack Cuba. There were ideas such as blowing up an American ship in Cuban waters, or having a jet disguised as Cuban shoot down an American jetliner. Kennedy turned down this plan straight away, thankfully. But what caused Mongoose and Northwoods to be shut down was something that came next. The Cuban Missile Crisis where the U.S. got as close as it has ever been to being attacked by nuclear weapons. The U.S. discovered missile launch sites in Cuba, 90 miles off the coast of Florida, and that there were more missiles on the way from Russia. Kennedy ordered a naval blockade around Cuba to keep more weapons from coming and to demand the ones that were there be removed and the sites destroyed. An agreement was made publicly to dismantle the weapon sites, if the U.S. would promise not to invade Cuba, and a private agreement was made that the U.S. would also remove its nuclear missiles from Turkey. Because of a relationship that Kennedy had with Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, where they exchanged letters, JFK was able to secure these solutions even quicker and saved the world from potential nuclear war. After learning about both the mafia and CIA, you the jury, Is it plausible that either or both organizations were involved in Kennedy's assassination? When you hear a lot of history about both, it doesn't necessarily tie anyone to it, but what it does is create the space for motive. I tend to agree with Roger Stone when he said, it was the CIA who developed Oswald as a patsy and the mob who used Ruby to eliminate him. The mafia had quite a bit on their own agenda. We talked about Rosselli, but Giancana and many other mobsters spent time in Havana doing their own business. That's why they were helpful tools to engage with the CIA. The Mafia, though, had their own endeavors and historically seemed to engage in other things only if it was advantageous to their purposes as well. It was advantageous for them to have Kennedy in office and to run things in Cuba because it affected their business. The only way they were involved in the assassination of Kennedy directly is if it was advantageous to them. And based off the way the presidency went, the battle with Bobby Kennedy, the liaisons with people like Marilyn Monroe and Judith Campbell, who had affairs with Kennedys and mobsters, money, power, and more, there's plenty of plausibility for them to have been involved somehow. 
One thing that stands out to me in regards to the mafia is that J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, never acknowledged the existence of organized crime, never went after it. He assumed Martin Luther King Jr. was a communist and bugged his hotel. He had a huge list of people he was observing and taking illegal action against in the name of protecting the U.S. from becoming red, but he never acknowledged the red that was all over the mafia's hands from decades of illegal activity. Seems pretty convenient. And though the mafia was powerful and connected, they weren't the heads of the operation. As far as the CIA, I would submit they were the godfathers. With the help of LBJ and other political powers, the CIA had freedom to do whatever they wanted. But in the crises that Kennedy faced in his short term of presidency, he challenged them and negated a lot of their plans. He fired people, cut their budgets, and he said he would shatter the agency into a thousand pieces and scatter it to the wind. And even outside of personal vendetta, politically, a lot of the CIA were not in line with Kennedy. They wanted him out of office, he was almost certainly going to be reelected, and they had the patsy for the job, Oswald. Author Ian Cron whose dad was a CIA agent, though he didn't know it for most of his life, shares about that experience in his book, Jesus, My Father, the CIA, and Me, a memoir of sorts. When speaking to a psychiatrist who also had treated his dad before he passed away, Cron says, I asked this psychiatrist how my father could hold down important jobs or work for the CIA if he was so ill. He had narcissistic personality disorder and was an alcoholic. The psychiatrist answered, At first blush, full-blown narcissists are charming. They come off as competent and confident. They are natural entertainers, outgoing and flattering. Half of the entertainers you love, and even some of the people who run our government, have more narcissistic traits than the average person. More than few are pathologically narcissistic. What about my dad's work in the intelligence services? How did he fool them? He answered, I know a number of men who worked for the CIA in its early years. I'm told it was loaded with alcoholics. No one can compartmentalize his life or live secretively as well as a good alcoholic. And I imagine people who can't feel empathy must come in handy when certain tasks have to be performed. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Plausible. I'd love for you to subscribe so you can continue to be part of the jury. These are my theories and ideas formed from the wealth of knowledge of many others. If you are interested in those details, check out the sources on our Instagram, plausible underscore podcast. Specific to this episode, if you want to learn more, I'd recommend Oswald and the CIA by John Newman, the podcast Slow Burn Season 1, and the full interview on YouTube of Michael Francis with Valuetainment. It runs deep, people. We're in the rabbit hole now. Plausible is written and narrated by Christina Hoagland, edited and produced by James Lobwin, music by Rodent Law.